Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and Welcome to the Bad Romance edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. And I can tell you that in recent weeks, it has sometimes, especially over the summer, been quite hard to come up with a bunch of recent financial news of the week. Um, And also because there's been this presidential election going on, and that's kind of drowned out everything else. But this week has been completely insane. And we could have seven shows with what on earth has been going on this week. So we're just going to more or less pick at random. But I just want to give you a taste. Because I think this is indicative of something. And maybe we can talk about what just in the past week, in terms of mergers, um, we had GE looks like it's going to buy Baker Hughes for about $30 billion. Um, we had BAT, that's British American Tobacco, try it, it wants to buy like the most the, the bit of Reynolds, which is an American tobacco company that it doesn't already own for forty seven billion dollars. Um, there's a telco merger, Level Three and CenturyLink are merging. That's going to create like a thirty billion dollar company. There's a brokerage merger. We had TD Ameritrade agreed to buy Scott Trade. That was just four billion dollars. That's absolutely nothing. Um, there's a massive semiconductor merger where Qualcomm, the semiconductor giant, is buying this company called, I have to admit, NXP Semiconductors, which I had never heard of, but which apparently makes um, computer chips for, car, for cars and is paying $39 billion for this company I've ne- I'd never heard of. Um, and so, yeah, love is in the air. Or, or bad love. Or bad love. This, by the way, is Mr. Edmund Lee. Hello. You run a, a website called Recode. I am the managing editor of Recode, yes. And Recode is an awesome website, so go go check it out. Edmund Lee is here stepping in for Jordan Weissman, who's on an airplane. Um, Kathy O'Neill is also here. Hello, everyone. She is an expert in in bad romance. We we have a little bit of bad romance as well. It That's looks, my middle name, baby. We were, <laughs> we were expecting... Were we not, Ed, the, um, the announced merger of Gannett and Tronk? Goodness. Ugh. 
That one didn't happen. Nobody even knows what those are. Those, that sounds like made up it, words. Well, I mean, that's you know what the newspaper industry has come to, right? Which is you know a one story big big newspaper company that a lot of journalists now don't like working for because of all the cuts. This is I'm talking about Gannett and uh, Tribune, which I guess they've decided to call this bizarre. I, oh, I don't right. even want to say it, but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, Tribune, L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, like these are these are these are big ma- major. News outlets, um, and you know some, some still functioning, more or less. Um, and uh, it, the fact that they can't even make this happen is just—it's crazy. But clearly, if you're in any industry other than the completely terminally doomed newspaper industry, now is the time to get it on. There seems to be—I mean, just from what I was rattling off there, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of financing available, like at. Uh, the push of a button or something. Well, with with basically near zero interest rates, right? Money is cheap, and so you're gonna you're gonna get these deals done before December when the Fed decides. Hey, guess what? Maybe we should you know bring that back up. So we we are going to talk about a merger which we haven't even mentioned yet. Um, we are going to talk about uh, the a uh, sort of kind of mergery thing that it looks at least like on a trade deal, Canada is going to merge with Europe. I kind of like this. It's Exciting. called CETA. It's the CETA. Yes. Um, and we're going to talk, because Ed is here and he's, you know, at Recode and he knows everything, we're going to talk to him about what happens to tech companies when they when they go public. Um, there's been a bunch of news around there. We had a little... Or when they die. We had, we had the death of a minor social network this week as well. It's been a, it's been a busy week. Um, but, Ed... What is the number one biggest, most important merger that everyone has been obsessed with all week? Oh, my goodness. Uh, something involving a little-known telephone company or very well-known telephone company, <laughs> AT&T, looking to buy Time Warner, Time Warner Inc. Now, let's be very clear about that. Because the, the Senate yes. managed to get this wrong. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, And you know what? I, I, I don't blame anyone if they're still confused by this because it's, it's not necessarily intuitive or easy. But basically, Time Warner Inc. is the media company that owns HBO, CNN, Turner Networks, the Warner Brothers Movie Studio. It does not own – that means it does not include Time Warner Cable. And it right? also does not include Time. Time, exactly, <laughs> which is the foundation of this, this media empire from, from you know, many, many decades ago. So it doesn't include Time. And there, it are, there are exactly three public companies with the word Time in their name, only one of which owns Time magazine. So I'm going to jump in here because I've yes. been kind of stalking Ed this week <laughs> on Twitter. I'm used to Because it. I'm just like, what – who cares about all these mergers? Like, do they make any sense to the average person whatsoever? And I've decided to like glom onto this this issue of names. Yes, Time yes. Warner, um, because like, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Time Warner and Time Warner Cable just simply split in like 2009? And if they're splitting back then, why are they merging now? Like, what 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 changed? This is this is my favorite question, and this is literally the number one question which people should be asking about this merger. Is that Jeff Bukas, who's the CEO of Time Warner, um, famously spun off Time Warner Cable as a separate company because he's like, content and distribution are two entirely different businesses. Let's spin them off, and if you value them separately, the they'll be worth more apart than they would be together. So that same dude. And then that same dude is now saying content and distribution belong together in a beautiful <laughs> vertically vertical stack. What we want to do is is merge Time Warner with AT&T, which is the distribution. Now, I'm going to come out and say that for all that this doesn't 
make any sense on its face. I kind of think it makes sense. I can I can come up with a reason for why it makes sense. But Ed, does it so make sense to you? I think it makes very very little sense. Um, oh, good. For the, so for, there's a whole lot of reasons here. But I think to go back to to Felix's earlier point and your your point as well about why would you want to then merge with a distribution company when you spun off one before? So. Bukas actually had an answer for a bunch of reporters when when he was asked. This. His answer was was interesting and not entirely believable, uh, or 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 one that I can latch onto, which is this: is that when he said when we spun off Time Warner Cable, that was a regional distribution player, meaning it has a, a regional footprint. It sells to customers in New York City and L.A. and other parts around the country, um, and you know it was smaller. AT and T is a national distribution company, so. My sort of counter to that is that what difference does that make to your content, right? Whether you – and this is – I'm getting to the heart of why I don't think this deal makes sense. No matter how widely distributed or or not widely distributed content is, you still make content. In fact, you want to distribute it as widely as possible. So being part of a distribution company doesn't change or should not change your content calculus. Okay. So here's my next question and it's directly related to this, okay? Can you give me one example – of a really good merger that happened in spaces like analogous to this, where you're just like, that makes sense. And it works not just for the, obviously for the CEOs who always get paid out a lot of money, right? And maybe for the shareholders who enjoy things like this too, but makes sense as a business. Like it makes it, 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 it makes other people happy. Like one example of a merger where the public is like, holy crap, this is great. Yeah, I can't think of one. <laughs> I mean, you have to understand that the, the, the motivation for a lots of mergers, I mean, it's it's very – sometimes it's very balance sheet focused. They thought, right. The word that, that you know companies use is synergy. What that really means is how many costs can we cut, right? Meaning I'll, how many staff you, can we cut? That kind of I'll give you I'd, I'd, I'd like cuts. to hear the okay. – right. I have a theory too, but OK, yeah. Felix first. Uh, OK. So here, here's a good example of, of a merge which I think was, was really good for both um, companies was Google buying YouTube. Like YouTube on its own could not have had nearly the same amount of success that um, that it had as part of Google. Or for that matter, you know, since Ed is in the room, we can say that when Vox Media bought the Curb Network, that was really good for the Curb Network. And it, it's been good for Vox Media as well. So there are horizontal mergers, which makes sense. This is not a horizontal. This is a, this is a vertical merger. So vertical. you're talking about buying up like basically competitors. But well, this is... well, was Google competing with YouTube? Um. It's a good question. Well, Google didn't have – I mean, I think it's a good point. So I think a few things. I, yes, we're very happy to be part of the Vox family, and I think that that's a fair point. I do think there are definitely sort of mergers in sort of smaller spaces, smaller industries that maybe don't immediately impact consumers. I think that sort of goes to the heart of your question. In this case, we're talking about vertical versus horizontal. So what these basically mean is in the case of AT&T, they are buying Time Warner, which is a vertical, vertical merger, which is to say – AT&T and Time Warner don't compete with each other. So what does that mean for the consumer? Your, your, the amount of choices you had in wireless carriers and cable companies does not change. In other words, they don't, they're not taking they're not a competitor out of them. This is right. not an anti-competitive measure. Right. Well, okay. Here's one thing that might change, right? And I know that this, this may, may, or, may or may not change, and I want your opinions on it. But I know for a long time the data people of the world have been really excited about the idea of tailored television ads. And I feel like this, in some sense, presents that opportunity, but at the same time, we might not be allowed to happen. And this is where I want to jump in and say, you know, we're talking about AT&T as a a television distribution, as a national television distribution um, 
giant, which it is, but only really because it just spent fifty billion dollars buying this company called Directv. Um, what AT and T really is is a mobile phone company, um, and. While everyone knows that at some point in the future we're all going to be watching a lot of television on our mobile phones, right now no one's watching television on their mobile phones. It's just not something we really do a lot of. And it's it's just it's a weird prospect, right? Like, do you really want to do that? Is that really why you want to spend eighty five billion dollars so that you can get people to watch stuff on your phones? The, uh, from the AT and T's perspective, you know, for mobile carriers out there, there's the mobile market is saturated, which is to say everyone who wants a mobile phone already has one, meaning you're already paying someone for service. In order for AT&T to grow or Verizon to grow or T-Mobile, they're just fighting for share. The way they're fighting for share is through price wars, right? So it's getting harder for a, even big, massive companies like AT&T to grow their business. So what are they doing? Oh, let's buy a content company because we think that's the future. If we can differentiate our service by having something that the other carriers don't have, then maybe they'll, we can charge more. Maybe and we can have stickier I'm, I'm customers. I'm not 100% convinced about this idea that what this means is that AT&T is going to zero rate HBO and you get free HBO on your AT&T. And I don't think phone. that's going to happen. That's but exactly like, right. That's not going to happen. I think, I, I think there is a reason for this. And this is the reason why, as I say, I think it makes sense for a distribution company to buy a content company, even if it doesn't make sense for a content company to own a distribution company. Because? Okay. Is that... If you're a distribution company, you have two choices. One is that you are a dumb pipe and everyone just buys content directly from Netflix or whoever over the top. And you just sit there saying, I'll charge you 40 bucks a month for internet and that's all you're ever going to get. Uh, the second one is that you bundle things together. And historically, this is what cable companies have always done, is, is they've made a huge amount of money by bundling television channels together and then selling them for like $100 a month. And the problem with the bundling model is that there's a handful of content companies who have an enormous amount of negotiating power. You have basically the five big networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and Univision, who have to be on that bundle. And then um, a handful of brand name cable channels, ESPN, ESPN CNN, HBO. So what... And and when you're negotiating as a cable company with with those channels, they have all of the cards because no one's going to want cable TV from someone who doesn't have ESPN. So you basically have to pay ESPN whatever they're asking for, and also take these other channels that maybe you don't want. And then and then ESPN is owned by Disney, and they're like, you need Disney Family Channel Eight or something, and you're like, <laughs> no, I don't. But you're going to wind up paying for it anyway because you need. Okay, a I'm going to I'm going to channel my children here. We're all you know we're not none of us are that young, so I'm going to channel the young people of the world, and the young people of the world are so uninterested in any of this stuff. And I want to – can we talk about that? Well, yeah, well actually, well, so let's think, talk about the latest announcement from DirecTV. Yeah, oh, the, the $35 a month. So thing. DirecTV Now, which is their, their over-the-top or streaming TV service. Basically, you can buy your TV. It goes over the internet. You can just sort of call it up on your Roku device or your smart TV device or whatever it might be. And that's, I think, the direction all TV is headed in. I think – so. but to your argument about why this might make sense for a distributor to own a content company – the, the the sort of counter to that, however, is that Time Warner, which owns HBO, CNN, and all these big, important, essential channels, 
they can't not sell that stuff to other competing no, no, but, but I'm not right? saying that. But this is exactly what I'm saying is that you have this – it's a natural hedge basically. That if you own a distribution company and you are getting um, gouged by Time Warner because they're charging so much for CNN, you get you're to- like, hey – it's just I'm paying it from one hand to the other hand. So, and you, you know, if it's a, so you want to diversify your business, fine. I think and, if that's the argument, like, I'll buy that. And there's one other really, really big part of this, which I think people haven't been putting enough weight in, is that AT&T, for all that it is a really massive company, is basically entirely an American company. Time Warner is global. And if you're looking for growth, the growth is going to be global. It's not going to be in the U.S. Meaning, so Time Warner selling HBO to like Latin America and Europe and Asia and content other parts, is. Right. They have Warner Brothers. You know, they have Superman. Right. Superman is is a global franchise. It makes more money abroad than so it does in the U.S. So, do we think young people are interested now? We're talking about like Superman and yeah, right? yeah, I do, okay. I do. But I do think that like the. I mean, here's my theory about it, and I might be totally wrong. You guys know more about this than I do. But I've been at a company that was acquired by another company, and I was like, they probably paid too much for this company, and, and by the way, they have a pattern of buying stuff every couple of years, and I feel like that is also a thing where people are like, I, you know, if you if you merge or if you acquire. People don't really understand how to evaluate you as a company. But if you keep doing it, like it sort of postpones that evaluation. And I'm wondering, like, they're buying DirecTV. Now they're buying all this. I mean, are they are they sort of just continuing to grow because they don't want to sit still and be evaluated? Well, they're continuing. That's part of it. But also they're continuing to buy things because they're having a hard time growing Otherwise, right? Yeah. As I was saying earlier about the sort of the price wars and sort of it's a saturated market and they're just sort of fighting for share now in order for them to sort of grow outside the bound. And you're right, AT&T is basically an American company. It's like, that's it. Like, you know, everyone who wants cell phone service already has one. So how else am I going to grow? You, when they bought DirecTV, that was what they're basically buying are TV contracts, right? The licensing right. rights that DirecTV already brokered with Time Warner yeah. and Fox and, and you know, all the other content distributors. Content so it brings up the question, there. like, did they are they paying the right amount? And the fact is, like, in terms of how much they're paying, they, you know, AT&T is a big, boring utility company, which I believe has raised its dividend every year for 25 years. And you can't not pay the dividend. It's called the, it's called, you know, retiree stocks, basically. It's like yeah. if you're a... It's in a category. Yeah. You, have, so, to, you, have, you have to pay that dividend because that's what people rely on. And they on care it. about that. So what they're not doing is buying Netflix. Right, because Netflix, they would they would have to spend fifty five, you know, probably seventy five billion dollars if they wanted to buy Netflix, and Netflix basically doesn't make any money, and so then they'd be like, how on earth do we get to keep on? But well, know. that's the other thing; they'd be taking that much more debt, right? right. So AT and T is borrowing a lot of money to buy Time Warner. But, they but already Time have a lot Warner of debt is cash flow positive, right. so they can they can afford to do that and still keep on paying. And if you're if you want to sort of wonk out on the math, some of this, it's like I think. AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson sort of marked it as their debt load after the deal would be something like two and a half times EBITDA profit, right? And he said, that's an investment great. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> he said, we're going to bring it down to 1.8 times EBITDA profit by this time next year, and it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Everyone's concerned about the debt load that AT&T will take on to, to, to buy this and also to do their dividend and everything. So if you're, care- if you're worried about the numbers on that, there's a rationale at least that they've come up with on the balance sheet. And then, and then like, you know, if you just do it on a basic like multiple of Netflix level, I think it's pretty obvious that you'd rather have Time Warner for um, $85 billion than Netflix with its market cap of $55 billion. You know, I think I would probably rather have HBO alone than Netflix, let alone everything I'm, else. I'm, I disagree. 
I see. Because okay, remember you would that, rather have Netflix because because remember that Netflix has to pay for all of its content. It doesn't really it, I know, the but amount it's just of content so much it creates. Better. <laughs> it's so so much like, better for the, the young people are so much more into it. Like, and they're the young people are our future. So there is, okay. So you know <laughs> what? You, there Gary. is there is actually another argument for in Netflix's favor in terms of the business strategy, which is this: is that the content that's on Netflix and Netflix is increasingly just. It's originals they're owning, meaning they own it outright and they can do whatever they want with it. Um, that's exclusive to Netflix and Netflix, and, and you can argue, is also its own little distribution channel yep. as opposed to, say, HBO, for example, which has to sell to Verizon, Fios, as well as to Comcast, as well as to every other distributor. So AT&T, who now owns or will own HBO, doesn't have an advantage by owning it right? because all their distribution competitors will also have to you know, have that available to them, whereas Netflix, however – the content they own is exclusive to Netflix. Yep. Not anywhere, you know. You're not seeing that on, you know. It's it's kind of a it's it's not the most parallel argument, but like you're, you're people are paying for Netflix. They're not paying through Verizon or other distributors like Comcast or whatever. Okay, so I mean, we've already gone way over time on this segment, oh but goodness, that's okay. Yeah. I do want to just finish with um, the stock market crazy here. Um, you know, the value of this deal, you know. A, the value of AT and T shares is is a little bit, you know, up and down, but it's in the in the region of one hundred and five to one hundred and seven dollars per um, time on a share. Since the deal has been done, there's been like twelve billion dollars of turnover in. Time Warner shares, lots of people are selling Time Warner shares into the market, and the price they're selling them for is like eighty seven, eighty eight dollars. They're paying, they're accepting twenty dollars less per time on a share when they know that if they just hold on to their shares and the deal gets done, they're going to get $20 more. Ed, why would anyone sell their time on the shares at such a big discount? So we're we're now getting into the risk arbitrage sort of area where well a little bit but yeah a little bit so basically it, typically when an M and A deal is announced you know the the acquire the the company that's going to be acquired their their stock shoots up but not quite to the level that the acquiring company sort of is, is offering right so if you're offering one hundred seven you're not going to buy it at one hundred seven you're going to buy you're going to trade it around maybe hundred maybe ninety five or something because there's always a chance maybe the deal doesn't entirely go through the 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 gulf between where Time Warner is currently trading versus what AT&T has offered is a lot, in my opinion. That's telling us the stock market does not think this deal will pass because regulators, regulators, DC, DOJ, FTC, maybe even the FCC will jump in and review this and say yes or no to, to, to allow this to go through. It's leaning towards a no because and not because of if you look at precedent. There's no reason this deal shouldn't go through. Because Comcast bought NBC. It's a similar type of deal. It's a vertical deal, right? But there is, I think, and sort of a growing faction in D.C. that wants to create a new doctrine or a new measure or a new standard for antitrust things, which is size. In other words, you're just too big. I don't care it's vertical versus horizontal. We're not going to let that happen. We think it's bad for consumers. Now, that's frankly kind of a, an amateur read on the situation because, as, as we said earlier, you're, as a consumer, your, your choices aren't changing, right? You still have to pay AT&T a lot of money. It's going to happen regardless, right? So anyway, I think, I think it's politics now potentially playing into it. And I think that that's what the market's reacting to. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So this is the perfect segue to my next segment, which is this wonderful thing called CETA, where um, Canada and Europe are merging. <laughs> you, <laughs> thought not, not T, you thought you thought AT and T and Time Warner was was a big deal. No, no, this, this is far is, bigger. This yeah. is far bigger. Canada this... has gotten sick of us and said, "Like once and for all, we're leaving." I mean, they've kind of always been a little bit more European anyway, right? That's true. Yeah. That, that, there's this thing called CETA, which you think would stand for the Canada-Europe Trade Agreement, but in fact, it doesn't. It stands oh, for like... you know what? I thought that's actually a good <laughs> way to sort of break that. Yeah, that's that's a better acronym, right? Than than what is it? Comprehensive it's economic and tra- trade. Agreement. Which just sort of sounds like a like almost a global thing, right? Yeah. It's like it could be any country around the world, like where it's comprehensive, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's it's a purely Canadian European thing and it's eliminating ninety-eight percent of tariffs between Canada and Europe. And it is also getting rid of a whole bunch of like occupational licensing restrictions so that if you're an accountant in Romania and you want to move to Vancouver and practice as an accountant, you can just do that. You don't need to past new exams and that kind of thing. They have been negotiating this for seven years. Seven years, years, yeah. And they finally managed to get it together and Justin Trudeau is going to land in Brussels on Thursday and sign an agreement. Ed, why did he not do that? (laughs) Why didn't he just get it done? Well, they're, no, I think they're 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 done with this deal now, right? They, they are done with the deal. Happen, right? there, there, there hasn't been the great prime minister prime ministerial signing though, because this is where we all get to talk about for about three or four minutes. We get to talk about Walloons, and how much fun is it to talk about Walloons? So Walloons are what they're French speaking Belgians. Yes. Um, you know, we we love Belgians in our house because they eat even more frites than um, <laughs> Dutch people. Um, but I guess, you know, when you think about like standard economic theory and why trade is good, we always we always assume that tariffs are bad. But I think the, the, the truth is like they're actually really good for some people. Right. They're, they're protecting some people and some people's industries. The poor Wallonian farmers. Yeah. So, t- so like what's going it's, on? There? It's, I, I don't think it's the poor Wallonian farmers. Oh, you don't? No. OK, but let's let's, let's give well, a little the, bit the of the Wallonians here. in the first place. Right. Like, why are they a factor at all in this? Why it, yeah. were they a factor? OK, right? exactly. Why were the Wallonians a factor? The answer is because one of the reasons this tr- trade deal took seven years to negotiate, which frankly is quite not that long. By trade for, deal. for such a big deal like this, but yes. by trade deal standards, trade deals always take years and years to, to negotiate, um, which is one reason why you can't negotiate Brexit in two years, but that's a whole other subject. Um, the deal needed to be ratified by all 28 countries, all 27 European countries and Canada, and they all signed off on it. They said, yes, 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 yes. Belgium is, I'm going to come out and say this, not really a country. <laughs> <laughs> it has no reason to exist. It, it makes no conceptual sense. It's um, it's basically a random bit called Flanders, which should really be part of Holland, and a random bit called Wallonia, which should really be part of France, and a city called Brussels. And because Belgium is not really a country, and it has literally gone for years without a government. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's quite good. Well functioning. It's, it's, it, ha- it functions and it can, it can go for years without a government. But one of the effects of this is that all of the power is in the regional governments rather than in the national government because there is no national government because it's not really a nation. And so one region of Belgium, Wallonia, just stood up and said, Tuh, in a kind of French way, <laughs> as the French did, they go, Tuh. 
and yeah, we do not like this free trade. And they and <laughs> they like decided that, right? to to veto it. And because this one stupid Belgian region wanted to veto it, the whole thing was off. And my and the Canadian trade minister, who Ed and I know very well, of course, Christian Freeland, we- weekly yes, weekly talks, right? Um, but she used to be my boss. Um, journalist, right? She came out and, and was pretty much in tears. And she's like, I'm flying back to Canada. I can't even with these walloons. But wait a second. I mean, they had some some real points, right? Mostly what their points were, were like um, sort of pan-European leftist talking points of we don't like these trade agreements. They're going to allow Canada to import genetically modified food into Belgium and this so kind I mean of stuff. that was the like sort of ideological opposition right but in in actuality I think a big part of the, the sort of the, the the populace there I mean it's it's sort of a, it, what, the equivalent of like the Rust Belt region in the U S right it's it's an industrial manufacturing base uh, and the economy there has been terrible for a while and I think they're suffering the effects of you know, which now has become a bad word, globalization, right? Which is, you know, going back to free trade and more free trade is better for everybody. And they're, you know, they, they haven't sort of evolved. And this is a lot of first world economies, including the US, were going through this growing pain of transitioning from an industrial base to a services and tech economy base, right? And I think certain regions are sort of left behind or left farther behind. It's taking longer for them to catch up. And I think that's what they're reacting to as much as, I mean, sort of, in, in a sort of very sort of visceral way, right? I would. I'm just going to like throw in my theory about this, right? Now, free trade, in theory, improves countries overall, all the countries that involve it, but it doesn't improve every individual's life. And the point is that, like, because of what you said about Belgium, it becomes more closer and closer to the individual vote. And there was like a region where it's just like we haven't seen improvement because of these treaties, and we're going to vote against this, and we're going to stall this. And that's why the, that, that's why these trade agreements don't go through when like small small enough groups of people get. To and vote also, on them. just because they're French, and the French people are obstructionists, <laughs> and they love to say. Okay, but no. I'm just going to jump in though. But one of the things they actually push through, it seems, is a. On a sort of appeal system to this sort of ISDS stuff that we talked about a couple of weeks so ago. So we had a whole episode on, on investor state dispute settlements because that's how exciting. Who gets to sue whom and how. Slate, slate right. money is. Yes, so they have course. like a, a way to appeal a ruling from the ISDS court, like going to the European Union, something, something. Yeah. That's actually kind of and, exciting. And eventually it has to be said, the Belgian prime minister, who does exist, thankfully, um, <laughs> because there have been times when there hasn't been one, but there, there is a Belgian prime minister and he managed to twist the Wallonian arms enough that the Wallonian, that the Walloons gave up. And so now we are going to have a comprehensive economic and trade agreement. And do we think that somehow in a weird way, like Canada is essentially replacing the UK in this, uh, you know, in sort Ooh. of, you know I mean? that's my read on it. In a sort of I also wanted, backhanded to, I way, wanted right? to provoke Felix into talking about what this means for Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Poke him with a stick. Well, I mean, I, so very briefly, what it means is the same thing I've been saying all along, that Brexit is impossible, that in order for Britain to negotiate Brexit, it's going to need to get unanimity from all 27 European countries. And if you thought that was possible before, which pretty much no one did, you're, you're, you're not going to believe that's possible now. Does, does anyone believe that Belgium and Greece and Portugal and Romania are all going to say, OK, yeah, that deal sounds good to us. We'll just sign it within two years. Like, it's inconceivable. Also, TIPP looks like it's threatened, which is the 
European-American treaty that's been long negotiated. And Obama has like given up on it, I yep. think. And, and TPP, which is the Pacific one, that one looks like it's not going to happen either. So, it's so much bad, for treaties. Bad, bad year for Thanks, trade, Belgium. trade deals. Oh, and what, what, whatever happened to Doha? Do you remember that? The Doha, Doha round of, 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 of the World Trade Organization. This has been going on for, I don't know, I want to say like 15 years now and has gone absolutely nowhere. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, enough trade agreements. Let's talk about stock market companies. The news which we kind of hinted at earlier, which is there's this struggling social network called Twitter, which owned an even more struggling social network called Vine. I talked to the guy who was supposed to be in charge of dealing with abuse on Twitter. But let, let's Oh my goodness, yeah, that has got to be the worst a, job in the world. Wor- but top, in any case, tw- Twitter went public with a with great fanfare. Um, and because it was a tech company, everyone expected it to grow like gangbusters because that's apparently what tech companies are meant to do. And then it didn't grow like gangbusters. And so everyone on the stock, in the stock market who paid vast amounts of money for their Twitter shares are saying, boo hiss, we hate you. You've got to change what you're doing, even though really what it was, it's just doing what it's been doing all along. And there's a finite number of people who want to use that service. Um, and one of the casualties of this is, Vine, which is sad because there are some wonderful vines out there. Well, in fact, yesterday when it when basically they it was announced they're killing off Vine. I think Vine was the number one trending topic yeah, on Twitter, it was, it and was. I think my entire feed was just like, "Oh, here's the best Vine." Yeah. No, this is the best Vine, and please sit down and watch this Vine. I saw you know. some good vines yesterday. Oh my god! Uh, I saw I so spent, many yeah. good vines. Interestingly, the place where I saw most of the best vines yesterday was this other like hot kind of social network called Slack. Like uh, the entire Fusion Slack was like just taken over by amazing vines. Oh, I do, I do oh, have that's... a question about this, which I'm going to address to you, Ed. Sure. Um, I was reading this thing on Vox this morning, um, written by Matthew Iglesias, about the idea that like Amazon will not be consistently profitable anytime soon, and it's by choice. And how Bezos is basically like, if we if we made ourselves consistently profitable, we'd have the wrong kind of investor interested in Amazon. Um, and it, it just made me qu- like. Is that a thing to have it, to have like you're like as a company, you're like, I'm going to attract a certain kind of investor. And if it is a thing, how, twi- how did Twitter go wrong? Because I feel like so Twitter. There's always, yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of specifically Amazon, that has been Bezos's you know, operating mode really since the beginning. That's, there's nothing really new going on. And with he Amazon. famously wrote this in his initial shareholder le- letter when they yeah, went so public don't, in don't, 1997. Yeah. And don't buy into my company if you're looking for. I want for everyone to write that letter. Well, so his his job in his 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 mind his job is to make Amazon as big as he can possibly make it. So in the pro, in the in that endeavor, that means spending to either buy things or build things or get into new areas or new regions like India, which is what he's really trying. It's all these things are expensive, or spending money on content for Amazon Prime. All things expensive. So that's his. That's been his operating mode. That's his thesis. If you want to buy into his company, that's what you have to agree to. Some quarters might have profit. Some quarters might not have profit. It's 
it's, I've never seen a public company like this where when they give forecasts, estimates for what the next quarter might look like, sometimes the profit range they give is actually we could lose $100 million or make $100 million. Yeah. Like you will actually <laughs> yeah. give forecasts like that and you're like, what the hell? You're not <laughs> investing in Amazon for the profit margin. You're investing like in Amazon the for the growth. The, exactly. Yeah. In the case of Twitter. And so that's always a long-running tension between com- pu- it, for public companies between the people who run them and the people who invest in them, right? And so it's as much of let me the CEO saying to investors, look, this is what we're about. Don't buy on X, Y, and Z numbers that you're seeing. Don't believe the traders. Don't believe all the sort of the, the talking heads you're seeing um, on, on finance uh, networks talking about why this is good, why this is bad. I'm telling you what you're, you're investing in. Twitter, and this is true of a lot of Silicon Valley companies, has not done a good job of – Giving its message to Wall Street. Well, Here's I mean, what the, we're the about. So this is what you have to yeah, buy into. I mean, into. like to be Amazon, you don't. It's not enough to just not make money. You need. You also need to have. <laughs> I can do that. You also need to have a CEO who knows what he's doing. Like Jeff Bezos is, you know, genuinely a good it's CEO. A yeah. Um, and famously, Twitter has just run through CEO after CEO, none of whom seem to be particularly good at but being I mean, CEOs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend the CEOs of Twitter. Like, Twitter, Twitter's great idea was Twitter, and then they stopped having great ideas. Like, can we just enjoy what it <laughs> well, is? Well, but I think that goes back to the point you were making. So it, it, Twitter has about sort of the, the metric everyone looks at with Twitter for investors or anyone who's interested in the business of it, monthly active users. How many people are on it actively using it? It's about 317 million now. This this most recent quarter they reported, the quarter prior, something like 313, 312 million. In other words, it's really not growing. It's an esoteric service, meaning it's really just a for mere people. 300 million people use it global, every- globally, right? Still, if you think about the size of, of people, it is, but com- compare that to, to Facebook, which continues to grow. It's amazing. And there's a whole bunch of social networks which are younger than Twitter and bigger than Twitter, including, we have to talk about this, Snapchat. Which is going to go public and apparently, according to the news this week, is looking to raise raise $4 billion. And that's a massive amount for an IPO, for a raise. When a company goes IPO, they're just, you know, we're going to sell some shares and make some money and that'll sit in our treasury and we'll use that for stuff. But that implies a, val- a larger value for the entire company. Raising that much money, though, from the IPO, what is it? Is, How, why do they, they gonna, need $4 yeah, billion? Yeah, what are they going to do with $4 billion? That's the problem. I don't know. That it's it again. It's really it's it's a privately held company. They can do whatever they want They're right now. Buy Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know the the what the allure of Snapchat or they've renamed their company Snap Inc. Um, but the service itself is still called Snapchat. The allure is that it's lots of young people, right? And if you're an advertiser, uh, that's your biggest conundrum right now. Where are the young people? What are they doing? How do I reach them? Oh, this Snapchat is where I'm supposed to be. So let's go do that, right? And so they, shiny new object, they spend a lot of money on there. I think it's working. I don't know. They keep telling me a lot of millennials are, are, are looking at my product as a result of this. So I'll spend more money. And I think that's the promise. So that's their interest. In terms of Wall Street, however, it's just sort of like, we want something that's not Twitter, please. Could it be and, and there's enough people on Wall Street that they have $4 billion between them and they're willing to buy $4 billion of shares, even though they know that like six months later, a bunch of lockups are going to expire and there's going to be a bunch of other Snapchat shareholders trying to sell them. Anyway, we will talk about Snapchat IPO when we get to Snapchat IPO. I just want to talk, I mean, since we're talking about these like amazing, charismatic CEO, tech CEOs like Jeff Jeff Bezos, I should mention just because it was um, 
a big surprise to me and I think to most other people, Tesla made a profit this quarter. Tesla is one of those co- companies which is never meant to make a profit, and it made a profit. Elon Musk, Elon Musk somehow yeah. ca- came out with a profit, and, and the stock was like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> you're, like, you're still like three years away from being like a real big car company, and you've already made a profit? No, they blew away expectations, and uh, I, I, I have to say I was surprised, too. I mean, bit, like, unlike software, unlike tech companies, like – Building a car, right? Building lot thousands of cars, that's super hard. You know, it's there's so many moving pieces, quite literally, and you know, you can't always control them. And I'm not saying building code or building software is isn't hard. That's incredibly hard. And these are hard things to estimate, but there's less friction, right? There's less, you know, sort of It scales more easily. Scales more easily, exactly. You just build you kind of build it once and you just everyone taps into it. So I think I'm completely surprised. I think Elon Musk, you know, <laughs> he's uh He's clearly got things up his sleeve. I, I, I think it's hard to count him out. Um, like Jeff Bezos, I don't know that he quite rises the level of Jeff Bezos, but certainly very interesting. But going back to Twitter for a second, I mean, the other problem, we've, we haven't mentioned his name, Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of, of Oh, yeah, Twitter. I remember him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think part of the issue, frankly, is – a big part of the issue is that he has a second job. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah. He's CEO <laughs> of another startup called Square, right? Or public well, company, went, right? Just public, went public. Just went public. It's a, it's a payments processing and payments – You know, it, it, it does payments for small businesses and, and all kinds of businesses, take credit cards, that kind of thing. And I, I don't know. You can't – I'm sorry. You, two public companies – I, you're not – no one's that smart. I'm sorry. It's just not – Well, Elon Musk was the CEO of two different public companies. Well, and one until, of them is doing terribly, by the way. When right? it's getting bought by the other one. Right. So he decided let's just you – know. He had this company <laughs> called Solar City, which is now being bought by, by Tesla. And yeah, the yeah, shareholders right. signed off on it. But the thing is between Twitter and this other company, Square, there's absolutely no reason for them to be under one roof anyway. Yeah. So even that idea is, no, doesn't make any but sense. No, but right? what's, what's become reasonably obvious is that – the Twitter board has now more or less arrived in the what you might call Jeff Bucus land and saying, well, if you write us a big enough check, we will sell. Like if there's some company, whether it's Google or Facebook or a- Apple or Reuters or Disney or Salesforce or anyone who wants to spend like $40 billion on Twitter, we will – we are and, for and sale. A lot of people have thought about it and then – Said no. Yeah, because they looked at the looked at the company. Look, t- you take a second look. You're like, oh wow, this is not a really well run company. I don't really get this product. The so advertising is it, is, is it because it's not because of the advertising problems, or is it because of the? I think it's because problems? it's too expensive. I think I think at the right price, you know, there's a bunch of people who would be interested. But for forty billion dollars or whatever you need to pay to persuade the board to sell. No one's interested in, spe- in spending that much, and it's 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 for a tech company that you know still relatively young. It's not really growing by leaps and bounds. It's like, what am I really buying? You're sort of leveled off. All right, fine. So there's a smallish network that I can own for a little bit. I feel like I'm the really... only one who loves Twitter, and I'll wait for the price to get no, low well, enough you're, for you're, me to you're buy. You're surrounded it. by <laughs> journalists, like the one group of people who love Twitter more than anyone else. Did is you journalists. see the idea of like a bunch of journalists getting together and buying Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> Let's save this, please. I've right? got ten bucks in my pocket. No, I I personally love Twitter. I'm I'm on all the time. I think you know for Recode also specifically, like a lot of our audience comes, you know, uh, traffic comes via Twitter. So we are we are very pro Twitter in that way, absolutely. Again, but from a evaluating it as a business, right? I think there's there's lots of things that need to be sorted. If it wants to grow, it has to sort of expand its product in a way that that 
it doesn't come across or it doesn't operate in such an esoteric way, right? Like it's really hard. You have to really want Twitter. Once you get it, though, it's you you, you become addicted. But it, there's a big barrier to like really getting it, really understanding it, and finding ways to sort of like apply yourself, you know, um, to the service. So I think that's that's the big challenge for that. I don't know, man. I, tw- Snapchat's even harder, and that's oh my god, yeah, okay. that's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enough of these tech companies we have a numbers round people kathy you go first yeah so um 798 million um so we have talked not at all about camp- campaign finance and there's a reason for that because it's hard to talk about that without talking about presidential candidates but i do want to mention that um the financial sector has spent a lot of money on the on the presidential uh campaigns um 800 million dollars 798 million dollars which is up 35 percent since 2008 and in particular hedge funds well 2008 was a weird year to be for the financial well, okay, industry but hedge funds are have spent 123 million which is twice from 2012 so like these guys are are, are being serious about the influence that they want to yield want to wield my number is 11 um there is a brewery in Sweden Ooh, I'm called already thirsty. St. Eric's. And they're, they're super, you know, artisanal and high-end. And they make expensive beer. And they decided that they wanted something which you were meant to, you know, snack on while drinking their expensive beer. And so they said, let's make potato chips. And so they started making potato chips. And they said, well, since we're all artisanal and high-end. We're going to make artisanal high-end potato chips. They have created a box of potato chips, which they sell for $11. Wow. This is an $11 box of potato chips. How many chips are in it? Do you want to know how many chips are in it? (laughs) I know the answer. (laughs) The number... Five. I I thought it was going to be... Oh, my God. Oh. $11 for five potato chips. How big are... How thick are they? (laughs) I, I want, the, I want mar- the margins on that then must be pretty. I want them to be like potatoes, actual potatoes. <laughs> but even then, <laughs> like, would you pay eleven dollars for five potatoes? I, you know, you know, I was just buying potatoes the other day, and I couldn't believe how different the the the, the weight per the the cost per pound of potatoes are. You could go anywhere from a dollar to six dollars a pound, but no, I wouldn't. Depending on the type of potato. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Right. So you okay? No, I got I got a number for you. What's your number? And I'll I'll end up giving you two numbers. So. I'm going to round it down a little bit. Two hundred dollars. That's how much I pay AT and T every month. What? Wow. I have. Uh, that's just not for me personally. It's my household. That's me, my wife, my daughter, my 11 year old daughter who has her own phone now. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is uh, going back to AT and T for a second. I'll give you another number. After they buy Time Warner, their debt load is going to be about two hundred billion. Holy so crap. I will. I'm contributing maybe one one millionth every month, right, to what they need to pay off that, <laughs> that loan. One one that billionth debt. every month. One one billionth every month is exactly right. So I think don't exaggerate your influence. Uh, <laughs> um, but I guess the, the larger point to that is, you know, we we talk about these r- relative to scale in terms of what just bring it to a personal level. What I buy in terms of media, my household, AT&T is top of the list in terms of how much money I spend versus what I pay Time Warner Cable, what I pay Netflix, what I pay Hulu, what I pay – Wait. You, so you pay, you, you pay $200 on AT&T and that doesn't even include television? Does not. No. That's how expensive – that's what – it sort I of should – way do, more for my phones for my family. Right. And I think that's – I think this is true for most households. Yeah. And I think – uh, sort of that's the sort of perspective that I think a lot of regulators are considering it and also in terms of what this merger might mean and just the way 
the world of media we're talking about, could they bought Netflix, whatever. Netflix gets whatever it is, $11, $12 from me every month, and which is a great, great value if you think about it versus the 200 I spend and on as we And as we spend more and more of our life on our screens, we are willing to spend yeah, $10 on Spotify, $15 on Netflix, $20 on HBO. Like The amount of money we spend for digital subscriptions is just going up and up. And the present value of all that money is it trillions of dollars. And that's why people are, that's why these mergers are happening. Right. Okay. That's it. Thank you for listening to Slate Money this week. It was a good one, mainly because Ed Lee knows what he's talking about. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm good at uh, pretending, so. Come come (laughs) back anytime. Thank you all for listening to Slate Money. Um, It's always as good as this honest. So subscribe to it by, (laughs) by pressing that subscribe button on your phone. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. Email us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. And check out all of the other Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Uh, the producer today was Virlin Williams. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.